welcome to the Someone Summer podcast. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 51. This episode is brought to you by hashtag FamTaughtMe, my fertility awareness education initiative. Find all of my fertility awareness information on my website, www.learnbodyliteracy.com, and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at LearnBodyLit to learn more. I'm excited to announce a new program, Critical Menstrual Studies. This is a six-month program that you can jump in on at any time, and we'll be reading and discussing Critical Menstrual Studies every last Saturday of the month. Critical Menstrual Studies is the study of the menstrual life cycle as a category of analysis. All of menstrual life, which is a trajectory that begins before first menstruation and continues afterwards post-menopause, is deeply impacted by systems of power and cultural knowledge. Critical Menstruation Studies seeks to understand who benefits from social constructions regarding menstrual life. Critical Menstrual Studies will have six sessions together. Intro to Critical Menstrual Studies, Menstruation, Context and Meaning, Self-Objectification, Shame and Menstrual Hygiene, Menstrual Regulation, Laws, Policies and Menstrual Activism, Data, Marketing and Menstrual Consumerism, and reclaiming menstrual knowledge production. If this is something that you'd be interested in, you can head over to my site to learn more. I also think this is an excellent opportunity to connect with others in your field or related fields. You can sign up for the course at www.learnbodyliteracy.com. Now let's get to the episode. In 2020, Palgrave published the first of its kind the Palgrave Handbook of Critical Menstruation Studies. The handbook has 72 chapters, written by 134 contributors in 23 countries. I spent much of 2021 reading the handbook, and when I finished it, it felt like I had taken a trip around the world looking at menstruation from every angle. Yet really, this is the first book to ever attempt to capture the diverse perspectives of critical menstruation studies. I have been working with menstruation my whole life in some ways, and I wish I had known how empowering it really was to be this in charge of my body earlier, but this journey began around eight years ago for me. To be trying to participate in the knowledge production around fertility awareness, menstruation, informed consent, abortion, and other really important topics without any fundamental theoretical framework has been frankly challenging. It's hard enough to be practicing what I've termed autonomous menstrual management, or essentially taking matters into your own hands, because at the end of the day, this practice is my life. It has to be, because I rely on the fertility awareness method, and so it has always been more than just theoretical to me. But as a scholar, I believe that the theoretical framework is necessary, because it pushes us forward, and it forces us to challenge our beliefs. This growth is essential to my own journey, and I know it will be for the whole movement towards menstrual equity. So I'm forever grateful to the editors, contributors, and countless others who put together the Palgrave Handbook for Critical Menstruation Studies. It is truly a gateway into the whole new area of research and opportunity for so much more. As both a student and a teacher, I know how living with a menstrual cycle shapes and impacts your life. And I know how many people are struggling because they don't have access to menstrual health advocates. Most people haven't even heard of a menstrual health educator 
or a fertility awareness educator. And lots of people still haven't heard of a doula or a midwife. So we are all pushing this forward and engaging in the knowledge production around birth justice and reproductive justice. And I'm really proud of everyone because I've seen firsthand how this information is spreading. It is our work that pushes this conversation forward, and we need to build our network, and most importantly, we need to stick together and create communities that reflect our values. As Chris Bobel states in the introductory chapter, menstruation as lens, menstruation as opportunity, menstruation, and more broadly the menstrual cycle, are often dismissed and derided. The same goes for menopause, at the further end of the reproductive lifespan. It is transgressive to resist the norm of menstrual and menopausal concealment. With notable exceptions, across cultures and historical eras, we socialize this biological process, including serious inquiry into its form, function, and meaning, into hiding. This is short-sighted, and at the same time, deeply revealing, as it shines a bright spotlight on the need for change, After all, a dearth of attention to a fundamental reality, and indeed a vital sign, is not only a profound knowledge gap, it is an exposure of the power of misogyny and stigma to suppress knowledge production, and when we lack knowledge, we cannot effectively act to affect change. This is the core of what brought me to menstrual scholarship and advocacy. I felt that my initiation into this work was about how my own lack of knowledge about my own body was what was not allowing me to get better, or to truly make my own informed and fully autonomous choices. I went 11 years without knowing my menstrual cycle was a vital sign. And when I finally received this knowledge, I felt cheated out of the time that I had lost without it. This doesn't mean that knowledge about the menstrual cycle is the only part of me that I have to offer, or that it's even central to my personality. But it does mean that it was more vital than I ever understood and that my own internalized white and patriarchal biases would not allow me to see that menstruation was fundamental, menstruation was powerful, and menstruation was the key to a lot of understanding that was missing in my life. And though I was always aware of being a girl and a woman living under patriarchy, and though I was fascinated by the idea of women being strong-willed and intelligent and athletic and independent, Somehow, menstruation was effectively concealed to me. I followed the social norms around menstruation for many years. I dealt with menstrual pain for many years. And I had no idea how it impacted my life other than it signifying the goal of not becoming pregnant when I didn't want to be. So to think back on that hollow understanding now is pretty striking, as menstruation came into my life and changed the whole course of it. I do think my younger self would be proud to know what my older self has been up to. It's now clearer than ever how much menstruation and stigma are pervasive across cultures, nations, and other groups. And this is why it's so important that we fight to bring critical menstruation studies forward as a discipline and to use the handbook as a jumping off point for further scholarship. The handbook is extensive but it is most focused on the meanings of menstruation, and it's organized thematically. Over the rest of the episode, I'll be skimming through the handbook to give you an overview of what's going on inside. I also encourage you to delve into the handbook yourself. I think it works as an excellent reference book, and I love to keep it downloaded so I can pull it up and search for keywords and themes in my own work. 
I suggest other birth workers and those working in reproductive and birth justice do the same, as it helps to have these resources on hand when you need to refer to them. The six parts of the handbook are menstruation as fundamental, menstruation as embodied, menstruation as rationale, menstruation as structural, menstruation as material, and menstruation as narrative. I'm guessing you've never heard of menstruation organized this way, because I sure hadn't before, and that's okay. This is why I've created this overview episode, so you can introduce yourself to critical menstruation studies, and so that you can see if perhaps your own work may benefit from delving into one of these areas in particular. Menstruation as Fundamental The first section is aptly named Menstruation as Fundamental, and constitutes the first 15 chapters. As the editor Inga T. Winkler says, menstruation unites the personal and the political, the intimate and the public, the physiological and the sociocultural. Menstruation is fundamental because it either facilitates or impedes the realization of a whole range of human rights. The chapters will seek to bring together the diverse experiences of different people who menstruate and to particularly highlight the sociocultural, religious, and political contexts that shape and provide meaning to their experiences. Some of the chapters include Bleeding in Public, Rethinking Narratives of Menstrual Management from Delhi's Slums, The Realities of Period Poverty, How Homelessness Shapes Women's Lived Experiences, Bleeding in Jail, Objectification, Self-Objectification, and Menstrual Injustice, the Human Rights of Women and Girls with Disabilities, Sterilization and Other Coercive Responses to Menstruation, and Navigating the Binary, a Visual Narrative of Trans and Gender Queer Menstruation. As you can see, this part of the handbook is just packed with perspective. Not only are the chapters diverse in their content, they're also diverse in style, from research to personal essays and conversations. As much of menstrual studies has been relegated outside of the academy, it is an important choice to include this heterogeneity of source material to open the handbook as menstruation as fundamental. As you can read from the diverse stories in this section, it affects everyone differently depending on their life circumstance, culture, and environment. For example, a theme that has come up in my own work in art has been the antagonism between women's bodies and public space. And this is brilliantly depicted in Shalini Vora's chapter about the homeless women in Bristol, UK, who experience a kind of double stigma by being both homeless and a person who menstruates. This affects the way they exist in public space and have to navigate privacy and physical pain during menstruation. The inability to conceal menstruation comes up again as an important theme in this context. Another really powerful chapter comes from Linda Steele and Beth Goldblatt, who argue that critical menstruation studies must deal with the unaddressed needs of menstruators with disabilities and to defend their human rights from coercive interventions, including sterilization. They write, Menstruation by women and girls with disabilities and menstrual behavior purportedly displayed with women and girls with disabilities have been the basis for coercive interventions by parents, carers, medical professionals, and the courts, particularly through sterilization. And there's even more to dig into in this section, including exploring menstruation in the context of migration, child marriage, caste systems, and religion. 
The chapters concerning religion are fascinating, as many of the modern fertility awareness methods were crafted and perfected by religious communities and ritualizing menstruation or through taboo. The key thing to take away from menstruation as fundamental is that there's an importance to recording and analyzing the lived experience of people who menstruate all over the world. Gender is just one element in a complex set of factors which intersect and impact the experiences of the individual. Because menstruation has been relegated to a private matter, this section highlights the fact that menstruation constantly agitates the public sphere, and those who menstruate publicly are in fact participating in a form of resistance to patriarchal life. The editor concludes that, Menstruation is fundamental because it is ultimately about power relations. This framing is extremely important to a human rights perspective on addressing menstruation because it concerns the dignity and agency which every menstruating person should be afforded, but is often unable to because of the constraints of their sociocultural norms or because they don't have the ability to determine their own destiny in a larger context, such as someone living in a refugee camp or someone who is incarcerated. Menstruation as Embodied The second section is devoted to menstruation as it is experienced in the body. The chapters contained within focus on how power disciplines the body and the many ways in which the menstrual cycle becomes a site of sexualization, self-objectification, and objection, of shame and shaming, of medicalization, disability and dysfunction, and even a source of moral panic. This section also highlights how proper management and concealment of menstruation constitutes what has come to be known as menstrual hygiene, and how abiding to these norms is a socially accepted way of performing feminine gender. It further extrapolates on how entire industries have been built around menstrual discipline and regulation through the work of the menstrual hygiene industry, which has a vested interest in keeping us disassociated from our bodies as well as perpetuating harmful menstrual stigma. Some of the chapters include The Menarchy Journey, Embodied Connections and Disconnections, Learning About What's Down There, Body Image Below the Belt and Menstrual Education, The Womb Wanders Not, Enhancing Endometriosis Education in a Culture of Menstrual Misinformation, and Premenstrual Syndrome, PMS, and the Myth of the Irrational Female. There's just a lot to take from this section. Body politics has been an interest of mine for a very long time, and I've even done some work archiving menstrual product marketing in the past to reveal these stigmas and why the companies that market them to menstruators use these effective strategies to sell more products. It also connects well with other notions of body politics, such as the self-monitoring or self-policing, a strategy that menstruators participate in so that their menstrual status can remain hidden to the public. This extends further to the self-prescribed label of being PMS, which is used to distance themselves from their embodied selves in an effort to retain their femininity, a certain way of placing blame on the body instead of one's own desires. Indeed, self-objectification is strongly persuasive, and because of the sexual objectification of women's bodies under cis-hetero white patriarchal capitalism, Women's self-policing goes beyond menstruation and into all forms of feminine presentation, which has disastrous effects on the psychological and sexual well-being of the person. 
This connection has been confirmed through study, where women who self-objectify have been found to have particularly negative attitudes towards menstruation. This cascades into all forms of their menstrual life, whether that is the elimination of menstruation or deep-seated shame around pregnancy, breastfeeding, and other reproductive life events. These attitudes may be the trunk from which many other branches stem, leading to risk-taking around their mental and physical health. All of this to say that menstruation as embodiment is a fascinating point of research, and the chapters contained within do a great job of exploring the areas around self-esteem, stigma, self-presentation, sexual health, and more. Because menstruation happens in the body, it means that the body becomes the target site for our stigmatized status. This deeply impacts the lives of those who menstruate and their ability to live freely with self-determination. Menstruation as Rationale In Part 3, the handbook gets into menstruation as rationale, the ways in which menstruation has been used as a rationale to purposefully curtain women's political rights, access to legal processes, and or benefits of citizenship, including the ways that menstruation is constructed as disabling and a liability. This everyday sexism is an enforcement of difference, and thus menstrual exclusion is normalized. The chapters in this section explore critiques of menstrual taboo and how it is used to direct behavior to suppressive strategies like contraceptives that stop bleeding and hormone therapies for menopausal people. The section begins with the famous essay, If Men Could Menstruate, by Gloria Steinem. Much of the feminism from this era has been thoroughly critiqued and uh, built on or rejected, but this essay remains relevant, and perhaps that is because not enough has changed since. The importance of this essay lies within its ability to expose what is considered innate difference, but what is actually culturally constructed difference. The chapters afterwards include Empowered Bleeders and Cranky Menstruators, Menstrual Positivity, and the Liberated Era of New Menstrual Product Advertisements. You will find out when the time is right, boys, men, and menstruation. Becoming female, the role of menarche rituals in making women in Malawi. And menstrual shame, exploring the role of menstrual moaning. These later chapters are equally as powerful, and they brilliantly depict why menstruation is so enraptured in contradiction, and how becoming women helps you gain status and power, but also constricts you to a narrow social behavior around menstruation. When menstruation is used as a rationale for exclusion, go to the root of the problem and then work collaboratively. The topics in these chapters should be explored more deeply whenever you can expose an example of menstrual as the rationale for segregation and exclusion. Menstruation as Structural Menstruation as structural is the sociological context within which menstruation is regulated. The laws, institutions, policies, programs, data collection, and more. It also gets into how the past decade has been impacted by menstrual activism and the shift that has already begun to occur through the menstrual equity and period poverty movements, as well as the establishment of Menstrual Hygiene Day and the removal of the luxury tax on menstrual products. Some of the chapters included are Addressing Menstruation in the Workplace, the Menstrual Leave Debate, 
menstrual justice, a missing element in India's health policies. Policy and practice pathways to addressing menstrual stigma and discrimination. Monitoring menstrual health in the sustainable development goals. And not to be missed, personal narrative, bloody precarious activism in Uganda. This is essential if your work is in government or non-government sectors and you wish to push the advocacy towards menstrual justice forward. The section begins with the water sanitation and hygiene or wash sector and how efforts to improve infrastructure can lead to better conditions to experience menstruation. Menstrual hygiene should be included in the human right to sanitation and this area had been previously overlooked. As happens frequently in human rights and activist spaces, implicit biases must be exposed in order to be addressed. However, WASH is a heavily focused on access to menstrual products. This is valuable, but needs to be critiqued as too narrow to address the structural inequities that cause menstrual injustices in the communities they hope to serve. Global and national developments have made meaningful strides to address the political nature of menstruation, but policy has hardly adapted to the needs of menstruators. Menstrual health and well-being still lacks a voice in most formal national, political, and workplace agendas, and the nature of work today brings about the question of menstrual leave and other policies that fight menstrual stigma and other gendered stereotypes. Additionally, the chapter addresses what happens when sensationalized statistics are used to move policy in ways that aren't materially useful to the communities or the imposition of Western cultural ideals about menstruation, which is a form of menstrual colonization. The other really valuable thing to take from these chapters is that in our efforts to actually make menstruation more equitable, make menstrual education more widespread, are we excluding and marginalizing people in the process? Whenever a topic seeks to become mainstream, it risks losing the perspectives needed to actually address it at the root. This will only come from authentic relationships with and communication with menstruating people, not through policy decisions that are made in isolation from the community and solely for political gain. Menstruation as material. Menstruation as material is pretty obvious. Menstruation occurs. It is a cyclical biological process, and it will continue to be for a large portion of our lives. Material also denotes materials, as menstruation necessitates the need for tools to absorb or collect it. It warrants discussion on how we manage it. Elizabeth Kissling asserts, within the current cultural logic of late capitalism, a woman's relationship to her menstrual cycle is largely defined through consumer products. Some of the chapters include toxic shock syndrome and tampons, the birth of a movement, and a research agenda, and not a real period, social and material constructions of menstruation. And this section also concerns how we measure menstruation and which metrics we find important, while maybe others are discarded. This comes up a lot in fertility awareness work, as we're often discussing our own form of metrics that aren't typically utilized by Western medicine, like looking at the consistency and color of blood and cervical fluid, as well as basal body temperature on the chart. Some areas explored in this section are monitoring menses, design-based investigations of menstrual tracking applications, and measuring menstruation, 
related absenteeism among adolescents in low-income countries. This section also lends credence to other entry points for menstrual activism, in particular how the arts has always been a medium for exploring menstruation. Depictions of menstruation are a transgressive expression of blood and expose unique taboos of gendered blood, as other kinds of blood and gore are normalized at the same time. Art is also a site of much debate when it comes to menstrual activism and the portrayal of the female reproductive system and genitalia. We are in a moment of reckoning with the necessary change to acknowledge and respect menstruation in the visual. Everything from medical school anatomy textbooks to protest signs are changing in real time as we address menstruation as visual and as material. This section eagerly addresses why menstruation must matter in order for us to properly deal with its material reality. Lastly, we reach menstruation as narrative, the final section of the handbook. If you made it this far in the handbook, you've already read dozens of personal narratives about menstruation. And since one of the major themes of the handbook is about the concealment, the stigma and shame associated with menstruation historically, it is no surprise then that the main way that knowledge has continued to be passed down has been through stories, folklore, legends, literature, art, and other media. As menstruation has been shunned from academic development, our knowledge production around menstruation has existed in the margins and the shadows, and it still is today. The amount of time that I spend dispensing information that is just basic biological fact and should have been included in, say, a high school sex education course is astounding. We are nowhere near uh, the ideal of normalized menstruation, informed consent, or widespread and comprehensive sexual education. The importance of narrative form cannot be understated as Quote, every culture throughout history has used narratives to process, share, and remember life experience. That includes experiences and knowledge of menstruation, menarche, and menopause. Stories do more than describe the world. Stories make the world. This section includes chapters such as From Home to School, Menstrual Education Films of the 1950s, Degendering Menstruation, Making Trans Menstruators Matter, Sex during menstruation, race, sexual identity, and women's accounts of pleasure and disgust, the messy politics of menstrual activism, and transnational engagements, women's experiences of menopause. The importance of the continuation of narrative form to express the complexity of menstrual life and affect change in the way people experience their own menstruation is part of transforming to a more just world. As Chris Bowell and Brianne Foz write, menstrual activism works to move embodiment from object to subject status, to see the body not as trivial or unimportant, but as something foundational, urgent, and politically relevant. When we take seriously the menstruating body, we link up with others who engage in critical embodiment work, from human trafficking to eating disorders to sexual assault. This is why menstruation matters should really be a rallying call for everyone who cares about social justice and gender equality. Menstruation unites the personal and the political and the intimate and the public, the minutia and the bigger stories about the body.
it is about so much more than blood. As you can see, the handbook is rich with information, resources, and opportunity for new engagements. For being the first of its kind, it is incredibly thorough, and yet menstruation is such a large topic that it is still not fully comprehensive. The handbook's introduction makes a call for more collection and archiving of non-Western voices and more awareness of menstrual perspectives in the Global South. There is also much more to be developed regarding the diversity of menstrual problems that occur from living as a marginalized person. And the question of how menopause is understood in the Global North versus South has more to be explored. Critical menstruation studies is really just beginning. I hope you enjoyed this dive into the burgeoning field of critical menstrual studies. I am absolutely certain that my work will continue to have a relationship with critical menstrual studies, and in order to properly place ourselves, we have to find and understand our roots. I realize that a large part of the uphill battle with teaching body literacy stems from the broken knowledge chains that were severed as the world transitioned to its current form. The profound changes that have occurred since, having capitalism as an economic system, nation states and private property, and patriarchal families as the dominant form of economic unit and family structure, cannot be understated. The forms of ancestral tradition around menstruation have long since been altered by these large social forces, to differing degrees. Now, we exist in a world where menstruation is still heavily stigmatized, while also looking down on the past, before, when women were oppressed, as opposed to today, where we act like they and all people who menstruate are not. So those broken knowledge chains, the loss of culture, the loss of ritual, the loss of communal care, have all contributed to why it is so hard to talk about menstruation today. Never mind all of the material work that must be done to destigmatize menstruation in action, like in life, in real time. So this is something that we'll have to work through with praxis, which is the marriage of theory and action. And the framework that is presented in the Palgrave Handbook of Critical Menstruation Studies is a great place to start that journey. So if you are interested in menstruation, reproductive justice, birth work, or if your work touches people who menstruate, and likely it does, you will find valuable things in this book. So again, a big, big thanks to all of the editors and contributors to this masterful piece of work. I am deeply grateful. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone. You can find my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. If you can take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review me, I would really appreciate that, as doing so helps more people find the show. And this episode is brought to you by my Fertility Awareness Education Initiative, hashtag FamTaughtMe. You can book a session with me by heading over to www.learnbodyliteracy.com, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at LearnBodyLit to learn more. Don't forget to sign up for Critical Menstrual Studies and join us if you want to dive in deeper, as your support is always appreciated. And this concludes episode 51 of the Someone Summer podcast. Good night. <laughs>